Well, good morning, church. Go ahead and open up to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. I'd like to start off this morning by sharing my salvation story. Don, don't worry. I'm going to share the short version. I grew up in a farming community, attending Sunday school and church every Sunday. I knew the familiar Bible stories and would have considered myself a Christian. I would have professed Christ, but I didn't possess Christ. I had not been born again. I was not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. I felt safe and secure in my knowledge of God, but my soul was lost, and I was in jeopardy of spending eternity separated from the presence of God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he had for me, even when I was dead in my trespasses, I was made alive together with Christ. Amen. And so I began my journey of knowing and growing in Christ. And for almost 50 years, I've been taught, mentored, and discipled by hundreds of people. And I've had the privilege of teaching, mentoring, and discipling thousands of people through various ministries. There have been ups and downs, times of weariness and doubt, but the Holy Spirit has used the Word of God and the people of God to keep me pressing on to spiritual maturity. And that is what the writer of the book of Hebrews is attempting to do with the community of faith that he is writing to. He wants them to go on to spiritual maturity, despite persecution and the loss of earthly possessions. However, he also includes several warning passages for those who profess Christ but don't possess Christ as I shared in my testimony earlier. His warning in Hebrews 10 is direct and to the point, and so I will try to follow his lead and give it to you straight. Sound good? All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you that you give it to us straight, that you're honest with us, that every word you say is true, every promise is kept. It is your word that sets us free to be conformed to the image of your Son and to glorify you here on earth. Holy Spirit, we invite you now to open our hearts, to open our eyes, to open our ears. Let us hear your word clearly. And Lord, let it resonate within us. Change us from the inside out. And Father, if there's anyone here this morning who only professes you but doesn't possess you, who is not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would bring new life, that faith would be engendered, and that any of those people would come to know you as their personal Savior this day, because today is the day of salvation. Thank you for this word, Lord. Proclaim it to us now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me give you a short review of last week's teaching in Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Based on Christ's once-for-all sacrifice that perfects or completes us for all time, we can confidently draw near to God, knowing we've been sprinkled clean and washed with pure water. Since God is faithful to keep his promises, we should hold fast our confession of faith and encourage one another toward greater maturity. Now, I think it took Grant about 50 minutes last week to communicate that. But he's still young. He's still a young pastor. But I want to say this, that I think he communicated it beautifully. 
It was a wonderful word. Thank you, son. Well, today's message is the fourth warning passage in the book of Hebrews. And here's a summary of the others that we've covered so far. The writer told the community of faith in chapter 2 to pay much closer attention to the truth, lest they drift from it and neglect the great salvation that had been offered. In chapters 3 and 4, he said not to harden their hearts through unbelief and disobedience, and thus not enter God's rest. In chapter 5 and 6, he said to not just profess Christ, but possess Him and go on to spiritual maturity and then bear fruit. And that brings us to today's text in chapter 10, verses 26 to 31. So please turn, if you haven't already, to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. It says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, first of all, the author of Hebrews is not saying that if believers persist in sinning deliberately, there would come a point where the effect of Christ's sacrifice runs out, and Christ would say, I've paid for your sins up to this point, but I'm not prepared to pay for them any further. Instead, what the author of Hebrews has in mind is a deliberate, sinful lifestyle of of high-handed rebellion against God and His Word. If a person keeps on sinning in this way after receiving a knowledge of the gospel's truth, no sacrifice for this kind of sin remains. John Calvin put it this way. He said, The writer of Hebrews describes as sinners not those who fall into any kind of sin, but those who forsake the church and separate themselves from Christ. And there's a great difference between individual lapses and universal desertion of the kind, which makes for a total falling away from the grace of Christ. So here's the point. If we know the truth of the gospel and continually and deliberately reject the sacrifice of Christ for our sins, there's no other sacrifice available. We've rejected the only way to be redeemed, the only path to God. As Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. And if we deliberately and continually reject God's plan of salvation through the perfect sacrifice of Christ, then judgment is the only thing we can expect because there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So let's look at verse 27, but I want to go back and start with verse 26 again. It says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, if you've been wondering when we would get to the fire and brimstone preaching, uh, we're here. So buckle up, okay? If you reject the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ as the means to put away your sin, then judgment is coming. And the writer says, be warned. Now, the Bible talks a lot about judgment. It can be confusing at times because there are several different kinds of judgment talked about in Scripture. So let me do a little teaching on four different kinds of judgment that are mentioned in Scripture. First of all, you have the judgment of the cross. This is the judgment upon sin affected by Christ when he said, it is finished. The one who believes in Christ has been released from this judgment because Christ took our sin and gave us his righteousness. 
great verse in John 5, 24, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And then Romans 8, 1 and 2, you perhaps know this verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. So that's the judgment of the cross. Christ judged sin. He took our sin and gave us his righteousness. Then you have the judgment of believers. And this judgment takes the form of divine discipline. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul is giving instructions for the Lord's Supper, communion, and he says you need to not take the, the cup, not take the bread and the cup in an unworthy manner. And he says, make sure you examine yourselves first. And then he goes on to say in chapter 11, verse 30 to 32, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. In other words, if we examine ourselves and if we confess sin, then we won't be judged. We won't be disciplined. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. And then Hebrews 12, 5 and 6 is a great verse here. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. The Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. And then in verse 10, the second part of that, 10b, it says, He disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. So the judgment of the cross is judge, judges sin, and through faith in Christ, we no longer are under that judgment. The judgment of believers is for the purpose of discipline. And God does that because he loves us. And his ultimate goal is to conform us to the image of his son. And so he wants us to share his holiness. And so he judges in a way and disciplines us so we we continue to grow. Now, the third judgment I want to mention. So the judgment of the cross, the judgment of believers, and the third judgment I'll mention is the judgment of believers' works. This is not a matter of judgment for sins that have been judged at the cross. It involves instead the divine appraisal of the believer's works and service that will result in reward or loss of reward. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. All right, the judgment seat, the Bema seat. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 11 through 15, gives a little more uh, information and clarifies it some. It says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. In other words, we will be refined and purified as silver and gold might have been. 
So you have the judgment of the cross, the judgment of believers in the form of divine discipline, and then you have the judgment of believers' works regarding loss and reward. And the fourth judgment I'll mention is what's called the great white throne judgment. This last great judgment includes all the unsaved peoples of all ages. All who are not found in the book of life are cast into the lake of fire. This is also called the second death, which means final, complete, and eternal cutting off from God's presence. Let me read this passage in Revelation 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, praise God. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So how does a person get his name written in the book of life and escape God's eternal judgment and the lake of fire? The Bible gives us the answer. Listen to these three verses. John 1.12 says, But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Acts 16.31 says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And Romans 10.13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So how do, how do we get our name written in the book of life? By receiving Christ, believing in him, becoming a child of God calling on his name. And the question is, have you done that? Have you received Christ as your Lord and Savior? If, to, if not, today can be the day of salvation. Amen for that. So back in Hebrews 10, uh, in verse 27, the fury of fire that will consume God's adversaries is referring to the great white throne judgment and the lake of fire mentioned in the Revelation passage I just read. In the Gospels, Jesus referred to this place as hell or Gehenna. All right, let's look at verse 28. Verse 28 says, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, verse 28 is referring to the Old Testament law given to Moses at Mount Sinai. And one of the places we find this specific command is Deuteronomy 17, where it talks about the sin of idolatry, the worship of other so-called gods. And verse 6 says, On the evidence of two witnesses, or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. Now, the accusation had to be proven beyond any doubt. One witness was not enough. But when there were two or three witnesses who agreed, it was over. No mercy whatsoever, no appeal, certain death. That was it. And since we learned earlier in the book of Hebrews that Christ, who's the Son of God, is greater than Moses, the servant of God, and the new covenant is greater than the old covenant, then what the writer says in verse 29 makes sense. Look at verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who's trampled underfoot the Son of God 
and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. You see, if such pitiful judgment came from rejecting the lesser old covenant, imagine what will happen in rejecting the greater new covenant, which has better promises, a better hope, a better sacrifice, a better sanctuary, better possessions, and a greater high priest. This greater judgment comes from three immense blunders that characterize the apostates. Apostates are just people who deny the faith and and walk away from, from the faith. The first blunder is they trample underfoot the Son of God. I kind of tremble a little bit when I read that. They trample underfoot the Son of God. This would be similar to completely rejecting Jesus as the Savior of the world and instead spitting on him scourging him and crucifying him. Apostasy is an attack on the person of Christ, the Son of God. The the second immense blunder is that the apostates profane the blood of the covenant. Not only is apostasy an attack on the person of Christ, it's also an attack on his work. To profane the blood of Christ is to treat it as unholy, as common, Now, the phrase, by which he was sanctified, can also be translated, by which one is sanctified. And the apostate pictured here in this passage may have at one time professed faith in Christ, but his faith wasn't genuine, as evidenced by his turning from Christ and the body of Christ. So the blunders are they trample underfoot the Son of God, they profane the blood of the covenant, and also the the third thing the apostates do is they outrage the Spirit of grace. What had happened is that the Holy Spirit had come to these apostates, witnessed to them about spiritual reality, courted their souls, but the apostates rejected the Spirit's witness with outrageous arrogance. Such persons deliberately closed their eyes to the truth, just as the Pharisees had done when they attributed the Spirit's works of mercy and power to Beelzebub, the prince of evil spirits or demons, and thus their judgment is sure. The apostates have rejected the Son of God and His work. They've rejected the Spirit of God and His work. So what choice does God the Father have but to reject them as well? So one thing is sure. There will be no mercy shown for the hardened apostate, just as there was no mercy shown to those who willfully transgressed the Old Testament law. However, Transgressing the Old Testament law only brought about physical death, while rejecting Christ brings spiritual and eternal death or separation from God. Jesus said it best in Luke 12, 4 and 5 when he said, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. C.H. Spurgeon said this, You cannot have the Jesus of the Scriptures without the doctrines of judgment and hell. Think lightly of hell, and you think lightly of the cross. Think lightly of hell, and you think lightly of the cross, the only thing that can keep you from hell. Now let's look at verse 30. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. 
And again, the Lord will judge his people, both the saved and the unsaved in that faith community. Now, this verse is a loosely quoted verse from Deuteronomy 32, which is also restated in Romans 12, 9, which says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God himself takes the responsibility for judging those who spurned the gospel and deserted the community of faith. Clearly, judgment is inevitable, and it is impartial. There will be equal justice for all, because God knows the very thoughts and intentions of our hearts, according to Hebrews 4.12. And then finally, let's look at verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I'd like to read a quote from the Puritan Jonathan Edwards in his sermon, which was entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. This is what Edwards says. The wrath of God is like great waters that are damned for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course when once it is let loose. It is true that judgment against your evil works has not been executed hitherto. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld, but your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing, and you are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are constantly rising and waxing more and more mighty, and there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back, that are unwilling to be stopped and press hard to go forward. If God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open, and the fiery floods of the fierceness and the wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, yea, 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, there would be no one who could withstand it or endure it. The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow is made ready on the string, and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow, and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of a wrathful God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Thus all you that never passed under a great change of heart by the mighty power of the Spirit of God upon your souls, all you that were never born again and made new creatures and raised from being dead in sin to a new state are in the hands of an angry God. O sinner, consider, consider the fearful danger you are in. Now, Kent Hughes, who said this about Edwards' sermon, We must understand that Jonathan Edwards' passionate love for God and his flock was the reason he employed every tool in his considerable stores of logic and metaphor to plead for his people's souls in his message, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He was less concerned with God's wrath than with God's grace, which was freely extended to sinners who repented. Jonathan Edwards gave his people a whiff of the sulfurs of hell that they might deeply inhale 
the fragrance of God's grace. I like that. Edwards gave his people a whiff of the sulfurs of hell that they might deeply inhale the fragrance of God's grace. For the unsaved, those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ as God's only provision of mercy and grace, it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of of a living God. But for the saved, falling into the hands of God can be a wonderful thing. For the saved, falling into the hands of God can be a wonderful thing. Consider these verses. Psalm 26 says, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. And Psalm 1611, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And Isaiah 41.10, one of the first verses I memorized as a new believer. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uplift you with my righteous or victorious right hand. Isaiah 49.16 says, Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. You ever have a boyfriend or a girlfriend or just a friend in general and uh, you maybe wrote their phone number on your hand or you know you wrote uh, maybe their name on your hand? That's what God does. Those who know him, those who have been redeemed, he has written you on the palm of his hands. What better place than in, to be in the hands of God? And so that's why the psalmist says in Psalm 31.5, Into your hand, God, into your hand. I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Remember, our faith is based on the faithfulness of God. Grant shared that with us last week. So I read uh, this uh, short couple lines from uh, one of my devotionals, New Morning Mercies. It says, you have no reason for fear when you answer God's call, when you come into God's fold when you hear him speak to you in terms of giving you a life mission. You have no reason to fear when you answer God's call to himself and and to whatever he has for you. There's no reason to fear. But you have every reason to be afraid when you put your life in your own hands. You have every reason to be afraid when you put your life in your own hands. For the true believer... There's nothing better than to fall repentantly into the hands of God. Nothing better, no safer place. But for those who reject Christ, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. For the true believer, there's nothing better than to fall into the merciful arms of Jesus. Those arms were stretched out wide on the cross for our salvation. Those merciful arms turn aside the Father's righteous wrath. And all we have to do is to fall into them by faith. Here's the good news. James 2.13 says, Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now I want to give you three definitions that might be helpful to you at this time, and I'll invite Tim and Joshua to come on up here. 
I think we'll have them up here on the screen just to help you understand. Justice is getting what you deserve. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Justice is getting what you deserve. What do we deserve? Eternal separation from God. All of sin falls short of the glory of God. But mercy is not getting what you deserve. Yes, we deserve the lake of fire. We deserve hell. We deserve to be cast from God's presence. But in Christ, he has shown us mercy. So we don't have to get that in Christ. And grace is getting what you don't deserve. We don't deserve God's unmerited favor and love. But because of his grace, it's poured out and lavishly poured out upon us. Justice, getting what you deserve. Mercy, not getting what you deserve. Grace, getting what you don't deserve. And what we get is eternal life with God. Uh, Joshua and Tim, if you want to go ahead and come up, you can. For the unsaved, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But it's a wonderful thing to fall into the arms of Jesus. Let's pray.